Welcome to The Favorites, the podcast from the Action Network. I am Chad Millman, along with my co-host, Blackjack Fletcher. Boy, did we pick a good day to record. Sure did. Is Um, is there stuff going on today? Blackjack has already held my hand and kissed it as if uh, I was royalty. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's true. You know, or a high school girl. And kind of probably slobbered some chew juice on him. Uh, Well, you know, I've got a lip in and uh, a little bit of vodka and lemon seltzer. So it's a delightful Tuesday afternoon. That's great. Listen, uh, in a few minutes, we're going to bring on um, David Hill, who wrote probably the best best narrative sports betting story we've seen this year, without a doubt. He wrote it for The Ringer, uh, and it's got like all the cinematic, epic landscape turns that a great story has about a modern day better, about the world that's changing before him, about how he came to the world that he exists in today. It's brilliant. It's on TheRinger.com. Everyone should go check it out. Just Google David Hill, The Ringer, and Spanky, and you'll find it. Uh, but first up, Worldwide Wob, Mr. Rob Perez of the Action Network. What's going on, brother? Uh, anything from last night? Mm-hmm. I don't know. You Jesus tell me. Christ. I am... I am uh, or tor- a tornado of emotions. Let's, let's talk about the big headline of the day, Rob. Kevin Durant's on his way to New York right now. Does he leave here without signing a contract? <laughs> like, I, my understanding from, from people I spoke to last night is this changes nothing in terms of Durant's uh, getting contracts from other teams. And there is a specific team in New York who will go unnamed that has a history of signing uh, <laughs> superstars with yeah. very drastic injuries uh-huh. uh, to their knees without insurance policies, yes. the, a.k.a. the New York Knicks. So nothing's going to change. No. Like for Durant, he's going to well, get – if he wasn't going to get a max offer from the Warriors before, he sure as hell is going to get it now because we saw how bad Bob Myers and the front office felt. So right. this is going to change nothing for him, but – there are some names out there that I, I've always kind of spoken to this. I, I've never seen anyone come back from a torn Achilles uh, 100%, whether it's Rudy Gay, Kobe Bryant, Elton Brand, Wes Matthews, Mehmet Okur. I could keep going here. Um, I would be surprised if he's ever as good as he was. Well, and that's really tough to say. It sucks, but yeah. it's the truth. Rob, that, that number one, I think, makes him more likely to become a Nick, as you said. But um, does is there any thought that maybe he doesn't opt out that maybe he opts into the last year and rehabs this in golden state yeah I, I i thought about this and i brought this up last night and the only way only reason why he would opt in is to purely spite the warriors uh if that's his his feeling in his five because if you opt in you occupy 31 million dollars in cap space which they can't use to go out there and supplement draymond and clay because they're going to need that that cap space to either bring Durant back or someone in there to help those guys because Clay's got to get paid too. He's an unrestricted free agent. Now, if he opts in, he takes up that space, and then he just pieces out after his Achilles heels. But since he's going to be getting those max contracts from pretty much every other team in the league, you have to imagine that it's just not a smart business decision not to take one of those. So uh, in a chaotic world, he could certainly think about it. I just don't think it's realistic. Do you think uh, the Brooklyn Nets in any way get involved here? Uh, the Brooklyn Nets are going to be players regardless. And if, if the rumors are true that they're really in on Kyrie Irving, we know how great of a friendship the two Kyrie and Kevin Durant have. So, I, honestly, after last night, all bets are off. I, I, 
I can even transmit that I had some inside knowledge that he was going to go to the Clippers, uh, Ken Morant, but that's all out the window now, and it's completely irrelevant because everything's changed. He just tore Achilles. Like, everything's out the window. Not a single person, including Kevin Grant, knows what he's doing. I think he's more focused on just getting right first, and uh, he'll go from there. But it's certainly looking forward to July. Is Now it's a complete wild card, even more than it was in the past. What do you mean he was going to go to the Clippers? I just, I, from what I heard, uh, the Clippers were the front runner to get Kevin Durant. That's all. But that information, whether it's true or not, uh, it doesn't matter anymore. All right. So you made a good point about all the players who have had torn Achilles and, and come back as less than what they were. What is a less than what he was, Kevin Durant, in terms of value to a team and the league? Uh, well, that's my question. <laughs> you know, he, he, in my opinion, he was the best. Like, that's why this sucks so much, because he had finally ascended to being the best basketball player on earth, I think, unanimously. LeBron, Father Time is catching up to LeBron a little bit. He's not in the playoffs. And just seeing what Durant did to the Rockets uh, in that first round series against the Clippers, like, there was a feeling that this is the guy now. Like, this is 1A. Forever, it was LeBron 1A, Durant 1B. I think you can argue that they, they flipped this postseason. And as soon as he goes down with an injury of this magnitude, uh, he, can he come back as a top 10 player? Most I'm not going to doubt the man. So, yeah, absolutely. But it's just hard for me to believe he can return and be at that same level uh, that he was at. But he's certainly worth a max contract. Don't get me wrong. And he's going to be one of the guys that if he's on your team, you're guaranteed to be a championship contender. I just don't know if he's going to be in that stratosphere of like greatest players of all time for an extended period because the Achilles injury is just so drastic. Now, Rob, let, let's shift our focus here to this series a little bit. It's now 3-2 heading back to Oracle. It feels to me a little bit like Toronto let Freddy Krueger get up off the mat here, and that, that feels like a mistake. Like Chad and I were talking about it on the way over here. It almost feels like like this is going seven now. Like I, I can't imagine Golden State losing this on their home court. How do you see Game Six? I, I, the comparison, the Freddie Krueger thing is pretty accurate. You know, it's the hardest punch to throw is the knockout. Right? There was a point in that game where they were jabbing a little bit. By the time they got to the fourth quarter, they were putting their gloves. They didn't even put their gloves up anymore. They were just throwing shot for shot until somebody dropped. It felt like the end of Rocky Four there. That you're gonna do it, you're, but it didn't actually happen. <laughs> You know, that, that was the vibes uh, I was getting. There's a Game of Thrones reference of the Vipers running around the mountain, celebrating, demanding that the mountain admit that he did that to his sister, and the mountain grabs him and smashes his face in. You know, we could do similes and analogies all day here, but uh, for me, it just first and foremost, it was one of the biggest holy shit moments that I've seen in the finals probably since the LeBron JR last year, 2016 LeBron performance. This is up there just in terms of gutsiest performances of all time from a team. But Durant going down and then blowing the lead and coming back from it, like getting off the mat down six after Kawhi yep. is giving these two buckets for 10 straight minutes. And it was like, this is it. This, it's going to happen. And this team just never died. It's unreal. And now that they have to go back to Oracle, I'm still in the camp of the Raptors are going to win this game regardless. But uh, you, had it, you had as good a chance to knock them off as anyone has ever had since LeBron in 2016. I am so torn. Like, suddenly to me, Clay and Steph are sympathetic figures because they're, they're doing it for 
in a throwback way, which makes it seem like the teams that they played on were so much worse than than they actually were because now they're carrying a team that actually just isn't as deep as it was back then. But, um, like, I feel like them doing it without Durant makes them someone that I'm cheering so hard for. On the flip side, I love Nick Nurse. I love his story. I love where he's come from. I love the fact he had this team up 3-1. I will feel sick to my stomach for him if he ends up losing this series in seven. I love the narrative of Kawhi. Is he going to stay or go if he brings this town a championship? Does he then sort of leave it behind? The narratives right now are amazing, and it's messing with my betting head. (laughs) There's there's a lot of heart over brain uh, going on here. I'll, I'll tell you this, that just to play devil's advocate for you for a second, no one's going to feel bad for the Warriors because they still technically have five all-stars on their team, which is the final MVP. So there should be no excuses, even without Durant. But the performance that we just saw from Stephen Clay last night, that the entire continent, not even country of the United States, the continent of North America, knew exactly what they were going to do in the final three minutes. I got to run all off screens for Clay and Steph. Marcus Cousins is standing under the rim, wide open, and nobody cares because Steph and Clay are shooting this basketball. They're going down swinging with the Spanish brothers, with the entire country of Canada inside of their shirts. They were still hitting up those threes and making them and just completely normalizing these egregious, unfathomable clutch three-point shots that they have never missed since the beginning of this dynasty. So they're going to build the statues outside of Oracle in the Chase Center in San Francisco next year. I hope it is step in place shooting together with seven or eight defenders around them <laughs> because after last night, it's that type of performance and I'm always going to remember the Golden State Warriors by. Not, not that Durant dominance over the Cavs and the sweeps and all that. But they got off a mat and they went to arguably one of the best backcourts in NBA history with the whole world knowing, telegraphing, knowledge of what was going to happen and they still that right there, win or lose, defines the Warriors' legacy for me. Rob, is there is there a road for the Warriors to win these next two games other than Steph and Clay, like going for thirty seven apiece? I think really need Marcus Cousins. You know, it, it, he's so frustrating because he had flashes in that game five. We're like, he's back finally. That's the boogie we need, and then. It gets the spotlight gets really bright there in the fourth quarter. And Marcus Cousins isn't even looking at the rim to shoot. And Andre and Draymond are just drilling around trying to get Stephen Clay open. Right. And for all of those years, Boogie was notorious for being a ball hog in those spots. Like, how do you not get your teammates involved? Now it's the complete opposite. So we need to find a happy medium here with Boogie if they're going to have a chance. Because Stephen Clay, for gutting that performance out, they can't do that for another 96 minutes, which is two more games. They, can, they won't even win the game at Oracle if they have to rely on that type of performance from Stephen Clay. It's just not humanly possible. They can do it in clutch, you know, clutch spurts down the stretch. But we saw what happened when Clay came out of the game at the end of the third quarter. Yep. Nick Nurse didn't even do a box and one this time. He went to a triangle in two. He has zero respect for the Jordan Bells, the Jarebkos, and anyone not named Stephen Clay because, honestly, none of them will shoot. So I wouldn't play a normal well, defense either. And it's up to Boogie, is, is my opinion. Rob, let, let me ask you this, though. It seems the one guy who is willing to shoot on that team is Quinn Cook. I mean, is it worthwhile for the Warriors to maybe give him some more run at the expense of Iguodala because 
like you said, but, but but I mean, Chad, they're, they're not. They are willing to let Iguodala and Draymond Green take ten threes a game and make three between the two of them. Is it worth letting another shooter out there just to create some spacing? Yeah, your your assessment there is not only true that it's like three out of ten between the two of them, but it's exactly what Jeff Van Gundy was alluding to there down the stretch that Iguodala had a wide open, like, 18-footer on a pull-up, but that's not Iguodala's game. You know, he's a catch-and-shoot kind of guy. Uh, and he went out there and just, he almost broke the backboard. He missed so bad. So do you sacrifice what he gives you on the defensive side of the ball for Quinn Cook? You better pray to God that Quinn Cook has that game two, I think. <laughs> yeah, it was game two, and he has that national championship game that he had for Duke because this team was getting destroyed on the glass by Ibaka, Gasol, and Kawhi. Unless that ball shanked off the rim, there was not a chance in hell the Warriors were going to get a rebound. And the fact that we're having this conversation about the Warriors, that they're not the ones with the advantage in every category, is yet another true testament to the Raptors are simply just a better team without Durant on the Warriors. They they flip the narrative completely that you could never out-Warriors the Warriors in the past. Well, the Raptors are making the Warriors play their style of the, the way that they play in the half court set, and they're going to get out on you in transition off turnovers. That's what the Warriors made their name off of. That's what their dynasty legacy is built around. And that the Raptors have just clipped up that from them is truly remarkable. So, right now, the game opened at four and a half. It's been bet down to three, Golden State minus three. I'm looking in the Action Network app, which is Blackjack. Free. Free to download. Go download it. 73% of the money is coming in on Toronto. Largely public money. I mean, I think I want to wait and hit that number when it gets a little bit lower and buy me some Warriors. Yep. Wob, what am I doing? Well, I mean, for the same reasons why I personally, I had the Warriors in Game 5, even in Toronto, despite having the Raptors for the series. I thought they were going to play with a lot of nervous energy at home. And I thought the Warriors were going to get out quick on them. That's what I said. And, you know, whether that was true or not, that the nervous energy affected them, it did. And this is going to be the last game ever played at Oracle Arena. It's going to be emotional. You all think of any narrative you can come up with. But the Warriors have lost two games in this series at home. They've lost multiple games against the Clippers and Rockets at home. And I don't know if Oracle Arena has the same power this like fully armed and operational battle station from Star Wars that it has in the past. So if we're factoring in home court advantage here, is it worth four points? You know, probably still on paper and the Warriors are going to be vibing like they always do with that crowd. But the fact remains to me that over the course of a 48-minute game judge, this is not a 24-minute game. This is not a one-and-done like it is in March Madness. There's simply too many possessions for me to believe that Stephen Clay can do that again. Uh, I do think the Raptors close it out. And again, I can't believe I'm saying this. It's because they're better. Wow. Wow. It's just stunning to hear. After the dominance this team's had sustained over all these years, to hear hear you say that that the Raptors are just better. And I I know you're you're right. It's just I, I have such a hard time, Rob. Betting against those two guys in this spot, I, I don't know what it is. With I that just, short of a number, I, I'm going to assume this two number, days rest. This number shrinks with like, two days. I think you're right. I think it will drop with two days rest at home. The last game in that building, everything in my body tells me Golden State wins this game. He's not wrong about the possessions, though. Like, look at that yeah, game last are, night. Yeah, yeah, there are I, there there are a, a lot of reasons 
it's a bad Golden State. So I don't think there's a bad bet here. Excuse me, honestly, because I can make cases for both teams. And if there's a team that can ever avalanche into a 30-point win and just wipe the lay waste to their opponents, listen, it's the Golden State Warriors, even without Pam Durant. Like, we have to remember that the Toronto Raptors have the best player on the floor by far. They have a nuclear weapon that cannot be stopped. And he is dominating at both ends. And if they just get one mate shot at a Kyle Lowry or Pascal Siakam, yep. I did, they didn't get that in Game 5. You have to assume that because the zigzag theory that's kind of happened here with the performances from the guys like Siakam and Lowry, that they're going to eventually make shots again. And then what happens? Are you, are you praying that a Kawhi game, that Kawhi stays somewhat quiet? Because even if he's not shooting well, he's able to dominate the game in other ways like we saw last night with his offensive rebounding and just keeping possessions alive. And these suction cup steals when the Warriors are trying to get out in transition. <laughs> There's so many ways for him to just put his mark on there. And I, I can't bet against that. I'm sorry. Rob, let, let me just ask you this. We talked a lot about the Warriors' mindset after Durant, you know, the injury and all that. What is Toronto's mindset like right now? Because they had a championship literally within their grasp at home. It was there. They led the game six points down the stretch. They had a chance to win it on the last possession. How does that affect them going forward, knowing all of the postseason failures this team has had in the past, obviously without Kawhi Leonard, but how does it affect the rest of that team? I would say it's as close to zero as possible, but the demons of the Raptors past. Uh, are dead just because there's different jurors wearing this, this uniform. I understand it says Raptors on the front, but all those DeMar DeRozan days of choking LeBron, no, nobody cares about those. And I got the vibe after being four when that Raptors team was reportedly in the locker room, not even celebrating or smiling, just not saying a word. They know the series isn't over or even close to being over. And I think they have the same feeling after, after game five. Do they know they missed an opportunity? Yeah, they're all human. Uh, they understand that it was right there on the dust, and that really sucks. But I'm going to Oracle thinking I'm playing, still playing with house money here because even if we lose, we get another opportunity to redeem ourselves. And the third facet of this all is they haven't played well at home either all, all postseason. They lost that first game to Orlando. They lose first games of the series at home all the time. And they've been playing better on the road all year. So they may feel more comfortable not having all of that pressure of Canada and all of that nervous energy in front of those fans, they've proven that they can play better without that presence there. So it may be an advantage for them going on the road and playing in a, quote, hostile atmosphere that isn't their own supporters. All right, Worldwide Wob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. The good news is we get one more game. We get one more game to talk about. At least. Which we're going to do. Thanks, man. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks, guys. <laughs> talk to you. Joining us now on the podcast, David Hill, writer, wrote a story for The Ringer that is really about um, the world of sports betting today and what professional sports bettors are confronting and underneath it all, sort of how the industry is evolving and what this means for all of us, both as sports fans and then more, more sort of myopically as sports people in the sports betting industry. Good word. Thank you, sir. Uh, David, welcome. Great job on the story. Thanks so much. Uh, the centerpiece of the story is a character named Spanky, who's a professional better. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me how you people found people that don't use their real name. <laughs> no, he uses his real name in the story. It's his nickname. Yeah. He, yeah. Um, that was a joke, Chad. Oh, because you don't use your real name. There it is. 
You're like a circus clown. Can there David answer the question, please? I don't know. Can he? I'll try. I, um, you know, I, I originally reached out to Spanky to write a much more kind of pedestrian story. I wanted to um, uh, just watch the Super Bowl with um, like a big sports better in New Jersey, one of the sports books, and kind of write something about um, what's, you know, about the the industry in New Jersey and how it had grown over the last six months or however many months it had been at that point. And he was like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to watch the Super Bowl. I don't watch the Super Bowl. <laughs> so um, okay. we just kept talking. And um, he had this, he started talking to me about some of what he's seen in the industry. And the more we talked, the more I realized that there was a deeper story there. And so I spent a few months kind of hanging out with him and his crew and um, going back and forth to Atlantic City and, um, and uh, learning what I could about him and his life and, uh, and the industry today. Why do you think uh, he let you follow him? Well, I think he, you see it in the story a little bit too. Like he, once he kind of decided that um, he wasn't going to get to bet anywhere in New Jersey, and um, Mike had this idea that they use social media to try to like Mike expose Mike is one of the guys on his team. Yeah. And um, they, st- they sort of went on Twitter and started posting these videos of him getting, you know, backed off at all these um, sports books. And that was picking up some traction. And I think he realized that um, he didn't have much to lose by kind of being more public and that um, he had a lot of leverage over the um, the books who I think had a lot more to lose from bad publicity. I mean, every bad thing that could happen to Spanky's already happened to him. You know, I mean, he got arrested. He had all his money taken away from him. You know, he's had a lot of, you know, so at this point he's um, he sort of sees this as a Hail Mary pass um, to try to change something in the industry. Uh, you, you say that... Um you know he he's doing this to try to 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 force some some leverage against the casinos for for them not taking his bets i i mean just objectively what is the what is the chief complaint there i mean it's it's a private business they can serve who they choose to serve yeah it is it's true and uh i think one of the things i heard from uh, one thing that gamblers would say over and over to me was uh oh it's so un-american what they're doing and i'd always kind of laugh at that because it feels to me like it's the most american thing ever right sure like, it is like the idea of saying like hey i'm I'm trying to make a buck here. I'm not trying to give my money to you, so <laughs> you can't you can't bet with me. But um, but what I do think resonates with people is that it um, it seems unfair, and it's unfair in kind of a in in more ways than it's not unfair in like a silly way. It's unfair in a really concrete way. And the one thing that was sort of there were two things that I think were really really kind of meaningful to me as someone from the outside looking in. The first is that a sharp player. Um, a sharp player has information, right, that's valuable to the book. And the book gets to buy that as cheaply as they want, right? right? Because when you go to make a bet, they can say, well, you tell them what you want to bet, and then they tell you how much you can bet for. So they're buying your information cheap, and you don't get an opportunity to walk. They already know what you're trying to bet. So sometimes they can deny you a bet, and they get your information for free, and then they can move off that information without taking mm-hmm. the action. To me, that seems like a, that should be that's completely unfair. Sure. The, the second thing that I thought was compelling was that, um, you know, people are t- people who are um, good at this, want to believe that they can make a living at it, and you can't. And I think that the marketing Agreed. around the marketing around sports betting as something that you can win at, something that you can be good at, you know, that you can be a handicapper and you can, you know, mm-hmm. pick games or whatever, that that's, that there's, a, you know, there's something untrue about that if the rules are that the book can deny you if they think you're a winning player. So I think that, like, 
like one of the things that Rufus uh, Peabody says in the story is that, um, you know, in Vegas, it used to be there were house limits posted. And so if you were like some, if you were like Bruce Willis or something, or you were like some, you know, or Floyd Mayweather, you Mm -hmm. could bet anything you wanted. You know what I mean? You could bet the farm. But uh, for everybody else walking in, there were posted limits. And that was the same whether you were sharp or whether you were just a sucker, right? But you had posted limits. You knew what your limit was before you walked up. That sharp is not going to get cheated because they know what they're going to get to bet before they go in there and give that information to the book. So to me, that really that resonated. This is a, you know, I think my original title for the piece was Requiem for a Bookmaker, not Requiem for a Sports Better, because I actually think that what this, the, the story is telling is that bookmakers are what have died out, right? Not sports betters. That we don't really yeah. have bookmakers anymore. We just Very have few. We just have these like trading desks, these like kind of finance, you know, finance capital type companies, and. Um, what we don't have is somebody who's hanging a number, offering a bet, and saying, here's a bet. Who wants the other side of it? Let's, let's make a bet. That doesn't exist. It's just people who want to enter into a contract where they have all of the leverage in the contract. And so I thought that, you know, made to me, and I don't, look, I don't want to be too romantic about it, but I, I think there is something a little romantic about this idea of, like, a bet being, a bet between two parties having, you know, it's like we both entered into an agreement and we're going to make this bet, and one of us will win and the other one will lose. Um... I think that like that's the way that people told me it used to be, and it's not that way anymore. And I I think the only reason it's not that way anymore is because these companies are trying to, you know, squeeze every bit of blood out of the stone that they can get. It used to be, I have so many thoughts on what you've just said. Uh, it used to be a more, for lack of a better term, gentlemanly game. Uh, even when people were killing each other, literally, there was sort of a code that made it feel romantic. Uh, you quoted Joe Lupo in the story, who yep. I know really well, and who was yep. a character of mine in, in a book I wrote about all this like 20 right. years ago. Great book, by Great the way. And, uh, New York and Times bestseller. He, uh, he sort of captured the spirit of what I think is at the heart of this dilemma, which is, I'm happy to take your bet. I'll take one hit. I'll find out what you're doing. I'll let you bet big, and then I'm moving on. Um, but he's pretty old school. Yeah. And I think what is happening now is these... Bookmakers are actually just catching up to the rest of the casino business, right? As the potential for the volume has become bigger, the idea behind the casinos is we want people who do risk management. And risk management to us means increasing profitability and minimizing risk. And so they're not interested in sort of the spirit of the way the game used to be. They want to run it the way they run slots, the way they run blackjack. Well, well, you know, originally, like, people that... You know, street bookies or whatever, they were gambling, right? They were gamblers. They weren't balanced. You know what I mean? They took what yeah. they actually couldn't. They are, and even when they sort of moved into Nevada and were booking legally in Nevada, you know, I quote Vic Salerno in the piece. He's the guy that started Leroy's. And he said, we were gambling all the time. He said, there was a, you know, at the, in the, during the um, Hagler-Hearns fight, I, my whole business was on the line on that fight, you know? Um, once they were able to move into the casinos, um, when, the, when the taxes uh, sort of changed in Nevada, Casinos treated sports books as an amenity, right? It wasn't a part of their bottom line. They understood that this is the riskiest part of our business. Yep. We might even lose money in here, but this is an amenity we offer for customers to come in and play in, in our casino and spend money in other ways. And so there wasn't a lot of pressure on them. I think the problem now is that states that are legalizing um, you know, and regulating bookmaking now, they, they, the states want so much tax. They see this as mm-hmm. they want so much tax revenue that there's almost like – you have to guarantee a certain edge that maybe is harder to guarantee. You can't look at it as an amenity if it's a standalone thing, if it's not just a piece of a larger gaming property, um, or if you're not, a, or if you're not running a sports book, you're not running your book as a gambler willing to take a risk, or even as you know, even as um, 
a traitor, if you want to use that language. Um, instead, I think there's too much pressure on them to, to um, bring back too high of a percentage. And mm-hmm. so that's why I think we're seeing these kind of buzzsaw tactics. And you, you bring up a great point, because as more states legalize it, you're seeing some states get really crazy with, with the taxation on it. I mean, Rhode Island, for example, I think taxed at 25%, which, I mean, you know, Chad, sports books, the, the margins are razor Tiny. thin. Tiny. So when you tax at that percentage, I mean, you're going to eventually have states, I think, that, that this winds up failing in. I mean, yeah. what, what, what do you think about that? Do you think that we will have a rush to legalize and then some states kind of back out and say, look, this isn't working? I think that if a state doesn't have the, the liquidity, you know, they don't have volume or whatever, um, and the tax rate is too high, they're going to be disappointed at what they bring back. So Rhode Island's a state, the good example, where I think they're bringing back some pitiful amount back to the state. Right. So the voters or the state legislators are going to look at it and say, oh, we don't really make anything off of this. The business may survive there, but it's not going to be what the state thought it would. I think New Jersey's proving that they're going to do fine, but they, yeah. have, they have such a huge market of people to, and they have so many different business you know, companies competing there. Um, I think that uh, the tax rates will start to all sort of if we do this nationwide, they'll all get to be the same in every state. You know what I mean? But for, for a minute now, it's going to be really weird where every state's going to have a different situation. All right. So you spent all this time with Spanky, and there's sort of a great through line in the story where he's basically using you as a runner. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you're going to make as many bets. You know, if, if you can get 10 dimes down, you'll get 10 dimes. You end up getting five. Take listeners through the process of what it's like going to the counter with that brick of cash and trying to make bets and how the bookmakers are responding to you. <laughs> I mean, it was stressful for me. You know, I've got this guy who I barely know. I have a bag full of his money. And, like, I, if, you know, I can't let that bag disappear or I might disappear, right? So I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely nervous about that part of it. But, um, and this is Atlantic City. You know what I mean? I mean, I love Atlantic City, but let's be real, yeah. right? I mean, Still Atlantic, it's Atlantic City. City. Yeah, yeah. People will get you for a lot less. So, you know, it, it was, um, I think the book immediately... Um, the, the manager of Sportsbook, I think he knew exactly what the deal was right away. That's what I think. I think he knew that I was, you know, um, I mean, he'd never met me before. I'd never been in there before, and here I am showing up and saying, hey, I'm going to bet 10000 a game. I'm sure I'm not the first person to come through and do that. In fact, I'd seen other guys while I was in the book come through with backpacks full of money and make a bunch of bets and leave, probably heading to the next book down the boardwalk, you know. So I think there's quite a bit of that going on in New Jersey anyway. Um, but it was funny, like, you know, when they put your money into the little money counter and it, it goes, you know, yeah. everybody's heads turn. You know what I mean? It's really true. Like the whole casino, I feel like everybody's heads turn when they hear that sound and they're like, what's going on over there? So, but the, um, what was interesting to me was I got limited real quick, like second bet I made and, um, the tell the tellers at this book at the ocean, they were blown away by it. And this was over two days. And every time I got a new teller, it was the same thing all over again where they're like, I've never seen this before. I don't understand what they're doing to you. Um, you know, we take bets bigger than this all the time. Like, what's going on? You know, I think the manager, at least one of the days, the manager, I think, knew what was up. But for most part, the employees felt like they hadn't seen a lot of, seen somebody get limited so so much so quickly. Um, but, you know, I just shrugged my shoulders. I was just playing the part. I was like, man, I don't know. You know, I, I guess they think I'm going to win. I don't what know. What would they limit you to? Well, the first... The first bet I made was $5,000, and then the second bet they limited me to 1000 But that was for... Um, that was for a total. Um, for sides, I was able to still bet five thousand for a little bit, and then they 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 dropped me down to a thousand across the board. Wow! Yeah. And uh, do you think they recognize you were betting for Spanky, or you? They just thought he's playing for somebody. Well, the thing is, when we say they, I mean the the folks in Atlantic City, they had no say in it. 
they punch the bet into a computer, and then there's a trading office in Las Vegas, right. and mm-hmm. the trading office sees the bet, and they'd make a determination. Right. So they're looking at the number. They're looking at what the game is. They, they look at my name, but see, I got nothing on me. You know what I mean? They may have Googled me and saw that I've writ- I write about gambling, and maybe they thought, oh, okay, maybe that played into it somehow. But, but for the most part, I'm, I've got – so no, there's no way they connected me to a particular player. I think they figure the action's sharp because it's like, well, if he's betting this game, he's trying to bet – you know, whatever, $3,000 on the Lakers, and then 30 minutes later we find out that LeBron is out, you know, then you're marked right away as a sharp player. So I wish there had been more about his wife and their relationship in the story. Yeah. Uh, and I wondered if you spoke to her. I didn't speak to her, but it does seem to me like they have a pretty strong relationship. Um, you know, they're still together. They have a, They have four kids. They... You know, they, they vacation a lot. They, they, they have a pretty rich, you know, family life. Um, he's pretty close with his family. We did talk a little bit about how after he got arrested, how when he decided to go back to work, he had to kind of process, process that with her and that she was really scared about it. Um, and he was straight, you know, to his credit, he was straight with her. He said, look, I can't promise you that this won't happen again. Yeah, you mentioned that in the story, and I just was thinking to myself, why does he feel compelled to put everything at risk like that because it seemed like you know by all accounts they've got a nice relationship and he's got four kids and when he had gotten arrested i imagine and this is one of my questions for you like he lost all of his money yeah um so he's a pretty smart guy yeah he doesn't have to do this so he's compelled by addiction or (laughs) like why is he doing this well i think he loves the game um and by that i mean i think he really loves you know to him I think beating the line and, you know, outsmarting the books is, is the reason that I open and close the piece with us playing slot machines is because I think that that's that sort of symbolized for me what was what really the gas in Spanky's tank is. You know, what really is motivating him is um, not money, because when we were playing these slots, we were playing for, you know, we were playing for pennies and quarters. And, you know, what I mean, but. To him, it was that he was outsmarting the casino, right? That he was getting an edge on the casino. I think he plays a lot of board games. You know, he plays like Twilight Struggle and stuff. And he's like really, his fan, he plays backgammon. And, you know, he's he's somebody who I think loves games and he loves figuring out puzzles and taking on challenges. And so I think for him, that's what's exciting and fun about it for him. But I also think that he feels very passionately and strongly that what he's doing is legal and right, and he has broken no laws, and that there's no reason that he should be, and he, that he doesn't believe he's really putting everything at risk because he doesn't feel that he put it at risk the first time around. So I think if he, I don't mean to speak for him too much, but I think he would say that he learned a lot of lessons when he got arrested in 2012, and he knows not to make those same mistakes so that it's very clear what side of the counter he's on now is what he would say. He says, when I all my business that I conduct now, there won't be any more of this ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he was involved in this, you know, Canner um, gaming situation in 2012. I don't know how familiar you are with it. I didn't get too much into it in the piece. It's a whole nother saga, you, you know. Talk about it for 30 seconds. Well, it's, you know, Canner Fitzgerald decided to get into gambling at one point, and they started a trading desk where they, um, where they were going to go to Las Vegas and bet, right? They were going to use investors' money and just gamble it to make make money for their. They investors. were doing big, like they were big, and they were the first players doing in play betting. Yeah, and uh, I remember I did a story about this for E60 when they launched, and I was doing in play like during the NCAA tournament. No, during March Madness or yeah, NCAA tournament, and um, 
I remember Leah Matus, who was one of the guys who sort of went out there to run it and was at the center of all this, I th- I th- if I remember. Um, he's like, we just want pennies on the dollar. We're about volume. Yeah. And then they all ended up getting caught in sort of this scandal where they were basically running an illegal book. One of their bookmakers was running an illegal book out of the... Yeah, and I mean, it was messenger betting, too. I mean, they were, you know, what would happen is they'd get they'd get weighted too heavy on one side, so they'd go looking for someone to take the other. You know, they'd look for yeah. a, lay, a layoff guy. Mm-hmm. And um, that's something I think that's common with, like, street bookies or whatever. But they, they would call big players, players like Spanky, and say, w- will you take the other side of this bet? And under Nevada law, that isn't, that's not legal. I mean, so, you know, I think players who were playing with them maybe thought that it was it was legit because it's Cantor Fitzgerald and because right. it's the casino and because it's people, it's like the executives from the casino are the ones calling you. You think that you're doing that what you're doing is okay, you know? So, um, the government had other ideas about it, but I think Spanky doesn't feel like he's putting things at risk now because I think he'd say what I do, my business that I do is legal. It's legal in the United States. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm following the laws. I'm not breaking any laws. He's right. And I, he says, like, I have every converse, every conversation I have today, I have it like my phone is tapped. I make sure that I don't, you know, that I'm, I always feel like I'm being watched. And so he, I think that, too, is why he's probably more willing to be public now, because he wants to show, like, I got nothing to hide. I'm just a gambler. I'm just making bets. But, you know, I think he probably realized it was also a mistake to have $700,000 in cash in his house, too. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> other, exactly. gam- other gamblers I talked to for the story said, yeah, that was kind of stupid. You know, I don't... I don't <laughs> I don't keep any of my cash, you know, because right. civil forfeiture is a, you know, motivator. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think about the government coming coming <laughs> the after gamblers, that's a motivator for them if they know that they, you have a lot of money on that they can grab. That, that's something that can motivate a, Nothing a, a worse bust than the government. even when they don't have it on you. Yeah. The um the one thing that's challenging is making sports bettors look sympathetic. Yeah. Uh which is a lot of what you're trying to do in this story. Yeah. I think I did try to do a little bit of that. I mean, I, even with like, at first I had to convince my editors that I wasn't like, you know, whatever, too much enthralled to these guys. But By I, the way, I don't mean it as a criticism. I mean, that's sort of the part of the construct of the story is you're trying to make a case for these big corporations not playing fair. And the people they're not playing fair with are guys who are notoriously not people who you would have sympathy for. No, I understand. I, and, yeah. and, and, and I had this, the same thing that, that Blackjack was just saying about like, well, what's the, what's the beef? You know, this is their business. Why can't they tell people to screw off? And I think that another thing that I mentioned to Spanky several times is like, man, do, you, do people, the, the level that you're playing at is not going to make sense to people, right? Like people aren't going to see it as some big injustice that you can only bet $1,000 right. on a game. Yeah. Like for most of us in America, we'll, we'll never bet $1,000 a game. So it's hard to get people to feel bad for you. So I really had to, take some time to explain to people that, you know, how he makes his money isn't by getting lucky and winning a thousand dollars in a game, but by eking out one to two percent over the long run. And he has employees and he has a family, you know, so like you have to bet millions of dollars in order to eke out something close to, you know, six figures there. And you're also risking that you won't even make your one to two percent. You could go under some years. So that in that sense, limiting that player down to a thousand dollars is killer. And I also wanted to point out to the reader that like, they're not going to take a $1,000 bet or even a $500 bet from this guy, but they do like a half a million dollars a bet in bets a day across one counter. You know what I mean? So the volume mm-hmm. is really huge here. Right. So it's like, what are you scared of? I mean, Captain Jack getting limited to $30. <laughs> that was kind of crazy. Yeah, it's yeah. like, what are you, this is DraftKings. What are you guys afraid of? You got so much money. You can't give the guy 50 bucks in a bet on an inning. So 
you know, the way that I tried to make people feel sympathy for this, for the gambler is by showing, making people feel unsympathetic about the book, book, the corporations, I think, that were coming in and sort of changing the game a little bit. David, let me ask you this, because obviously we work for a gambling company, um, but my view on, on gambling is that it's something that should be fun. It's something that, that, you know, you should go into with your eyes open and probably you should expect more often than not to lose because it's set up that way. The, system is, bucks. the system is set up for the player to lose. People that view it as almost a career or a form of investing, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I have a lot of thoughts on that. I, I think about this a lot. I write a lot about gambling and I gamble and it's, it's something that's in my family and it's something that, like, I, um, I'm drawn to and I've always wondered why and, you know... I think that uh, that people like the idea. I think we all like stories about folks that that sort of win uh, mm-hmm. can win a battle by their wits. You know what I mean? That people that can kind of outsmart their competition. And in that sense, I think people like the idea of a sharp player or a smart gambler or somebody who's like really skilled at playing a certain game and can win against their opponents or win against the casino or whatever. I think people are, like those kinds of stories. I think that gambling, though, is about more than just having some fun and maybe you win and maybe you lose. What the heck? You know, I think that it's a game. We're playing mm-hmm. a game. I mean, you, when you sit down and play a game, there's rules. You learn the rules and you want to try to figure out how to play the game as best that you can. Give yourself your best chance of winning. I mean, we say that it's fun and it is, but it's like it's, it's no different. Like if people are playing basketball on a basketball court in the NBA, yeah, we could say to them, hey, it's just fun. You know what I mean? It's just fun. You win, you lose, you had a good time. It's basketball. You should go in it with your eyes open and know that you could lose the game. But they're passionate about it because they want to win and their desire to win makes them want to be as good at it as they possibly can. I think we all can relate to that. We're not all going to be sharp sports players, you know what I mean? But what we do all want to believe is that a sharp sports player can exist. You know what I mean? I'm never going to be a sharp player, but I don't want to believe that someone can't be a sharp player because it's all so rigged against them. I want to believe that somebody can. And one of the things that I think is crazy about what, the way the industry is approaching mm-hmm. this, and I've said this in a couple different interviews, is that... This is an opportunity that I think that the the sort of burgeoning sports betting industry in the United States is missing out on, and that is to market the sports, uh, the sh- the professional sports better, the sharp players, market them the way poker did with their pl- right. with players. If I'm a recreational sports better, I may want to aspire to be one of those guys. It may take me years to be as good as they are. It may take me years of losing. You know what I mean? And I may never actually get to where I can be a winner, winning player. But having that sort of north star to follow, to know that someone is winning motivates me instead what do sports books do they it's like some sucker walks in and makes some crazy 25 team parlay and wins it and then they give him this giant right. check right. and like that's how what they're saying see this could be you you could be the lucky jackpot winner that doesn't motivate me what motivates me is to see somebody who came in and like did their homework was smart knew a lot about sports understood numbers and was able to win over the long run that's what i think most people that's your long-term players that's what you want is people who are going to approach the game that way and if you don't market people who are successful at it then you don't give anybody an example of somebody who can be the only examples we have is these like you know these these like big big check parlay winners right. we don't everybody else they want to push the, kick those guys out of the casino as fast as they can i think they're missing a huge opportunity to market those players turn them into celebrities listen david it is an epic sweeping layered complex story about a subject we love <laughs> all of our listeners listen they should go read it cuz it's amazing it's so again little, it's, it's long it's long but it's <laughs> worth it like, it's totally worth it. Uh, Appreciate Again, um, go Google the story. Just type in David Hill, The Ringer, uh, Spanky. Uh, you're going to love it. And I feel like that's a better way to describe, to tell people to go find the story. 
than to like say go to ringer.com and you know give them the title of the story the story yes. might not be in the front page of the yes. website anymore you will like, find it if you put those you terms just in. put those terms in it's going to come right to the top it's a better sort of homepage well so, done Chad thank you uh, great work I can't wait to see what you do next Thanks really well Chad. done Thanks, appreciate Dave. that guys alright this has been the favorites from the Action Network download Rate, subscribe, review, Apple Podcasts, radio.com slash The Action Network. Until next time, love you. Love you, Blackjack. Love you, too.